The Unshackled Waves, Episode 3. Hello and welcome to the Unshackled Waves podcast. I'm Tim Wilms and this is our first ever philosophy show, uh, part of the expansion of the podcast. We aim to be able to produce one of these every week. Now the way it will work is that we'll focus on a single issue for the duration of the show. Often we'll have different points of view with the aim to unpack the issue and explore all the different aspects of it. News comes and goes every week, so with this show we aim to offer a more timeless analysis. My co-host for this week is Unshackled contributor Sam Oldfield. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Tim. Now, the first issue we are going to explore is libertarianism, because Sam and I have had a long association with the libertarian movement in Australia, and we've both become quite saddened uh, by the movement's direction over the, the past year. Uh, how it is apparently taking the side of the, the cultural left and becoming slowly detached and irrelevant from mainstream society. Now, I know that other libertarians will listen to this and want to revoke our libertarian cards, but please just listen, consider what we have to say, and have a mature response. Yeah, I've got to say, I kind of tore up my own libertarian card, so that's not a big issue, man. I, I've, still, I've still got mine, so... Um, but we will start uh, by first defining what is libertarianism and then exploring its history before moving on to some of the more contemporary issues. So first, uh, what is libertarianism? Um, it's, it's a big question. Is, uh, you know, it's kind of hard to discuss uh, an idea without first talking about its history. Uh, but in general, it's, it's this idea of... of um, of, uh, of an agreement between the economic right and the, the socially liberal left um, about sort of general principles by which government should be run. Um, uh, in general, less is more. Yeah, it's often sold to the public as uh, economically conservative and socially liberal. That's, that's how, how they try to sell it to the, the normal person. Uh, obviously, the, the principles that they... Uh, discuss is free markets, uh, individual liberty, private property and civil society. And they also uh, like, like to talk about the non-aggression principle and also, uh, uh, also uh, press upon the importance of voluntary association. Sure, yep. So that's basically the, the basic concepts. Now we'll, we'll move into the history of libertarianism, or, or as it was called in the beginning, uh, classical liberalism. So uh, where do you believe that it all starts? Well, uh, when discussing the history of ideas, it's hard to know exactly where to start. Really, I mean, we can go all the way back to Rome and early Christendom. We can walk through the Protestant Reformation, the Holy Roman Empire, leading up to the Treaty of Westphalia, but a lot of that's probably unnecessary. The best place to start is 1776, which saw two momentous events, the Declaration of Independence in America and the publishing of The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith. Both of those things are necessary to understand the Industrial Revolution through classical economics, sometimes called classical liberalism, and libertarianism is the heir apparent to classical liberalism. 
in a nutshell, Americans all but invented a new form of government in the form of a democratic republic. It was built around the idea that natural rights are the highest authority and that people should be more or less free to govern themselves within the bounds of natural law. Adam Smith developed those ideas in a more cogent understanding of how a free market economy should work. He famously noted that society works best when each member of it acts according to their own self-interest. This was revolutionary at the time. Up until that point, it had all but been assumed that society was most prosperous when, on the whole, it had the most power and the most money compared to other powers. Uh, trade at the time was a diplomatic tool in the conquest of greater wealth and power for the state, a power play, if you like, through which the more powerful side got rich at the expense of the less powerful side. Adam Smith realised, in fact, that trade makes both parties better off. Otherwise, people would not trade, regardless of laws. He noticed that even though the French were the enemies of the English, rivalling them in power, that the trade of English ale for French wine went, meant more of both for both countries. Yeah, Adam Smith definitely, he, he crystallised that by acting in our self-interest, we're actually helping, helping each other. So he, he, was, he was basically saying that, um, you know, as long as you're looking after yourself and trading with someone voluntary, that's what's making society go forward. And, yeah, obviously uh, destroying the, the doctrine of mercantilism was another big uh, achievement of his, uh, showing how trade... Uh, did benefit uh, both parties. Uh, it's interesting that today we're we're still we're still having that debate. Um, yeah, and the American Revolution was def uh, definitely the the fo uh, fo focusing on what were what they termed in the in the in Thomas Jefferson said in the Declaration of Independence inalienable rights that we are born with these as humans or if you're religious they they come from God and they they can't be taken away. Yeah. Okay, so we'll move forward to, uh, so that was in the late uh, 18th century, both, uh, both the Wealth of Nations and American Revolution, they, they around about happened at the, the same time. Uh, then in the mid uh, 19th century, around the 1850s is where we, uh, where we saw classical liberalism uh, really come into its stride in Europe. Yeah, and that's mostly to do with uh, the Austrian school. And uh, so the origins of the Austrian school are basically the Austrian and the German schools of economics grew out of competing understandings of economics in Central Europe. The Austrians argued that theory was at least as important as historical measurements, where German, the German school argued only what, me what was measured mattered. Pure theory was irrelevant. Uh, we skipped a discussion of the Holy Roman Empire earlier, but what does need to be understood is that the Austrians and the Prussians had regularly gone to war over who had the right to rule all of Europe. The Prussians at this point were winning. Uh, if the Austrian school had a founder, it's Karl Menger, whose 1871 book, The Principles of Economics, was the first treatise to apply calculus to economic logic to create a theory of marginal utility. This was followed by Bomborwerk's numerous attacks on Hegel and the German school, specifically the constitutions of Karl Marx. Uh, the Austrian school rests in large part on the idea that once property rights are clearly defined, regardless of how property is allocated, that market forces will automatically kick in to allocate resources to their highest use. There was for law or regulation because market forces just knew better. Later criticisms pointed out that the Austrian school just so happened to justify the maintenance of the huge fortunes of the Austrian nobility, 
of which almost all the members of the Austrian school were a part. Uh, going back to uh, just explaining what the, the Austrian school uh, contribution is, that, uh, for those of you who don't know, it's uh, what it mainly, uh, what it, its main initial discovery was there, or idea was that we subject, uh, value is subjective, that we value, for example, I, I, value, I value this microphone not because uh, somebody went to a lot of effort to build it, but because it's, it's very valuable to me. And that was opposed to um, Adam Smith who, and the other classical economists who believed, who, who actually uh, propagated an early uh, version of Karl Marx's labour theory of value. Well, in actual fact, uh, Karl Marx didn't do too much with the labour theory of value. Marx was more concerned with uh, surplus value rather than the, the labour theory of value. But the labour theory of value was, in fact, pure Smith. And he, he was just pointing out that um, if you can't sell something for more than what it costs to produce it, then you won't produce it. Yeah. Now, we've, ta we've talked a lot about uh, theory so far, but let's talk about uh, the... Uh, the implementation of uh, classical liberalism uh, in the in the 19th century in Europe. Well, uh, and it, it, the the question there is how those ideas sort of spread. Um, and well, well, the Austrians were treating economics as just a theoretical exercise. The English and the French were testing it out. Uh, the Industrial Revolution, which had begun in England and spread to Europe, was in full swing during the 19th century. Uh, and although the economies of Britain and France were very much laissez-faire, uh, the point to it was still the power of the state. Both nations still used, used the enormous productive powers of capitalism to fund armies and fleets to make a very good effort at conquering the world. Uh, the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars had taught both countries very valuable lessons in making sure that there was something in it for their citizens. As such, things like the abolition of slavery, bankruptcy laws, joint stock company, and many other things that uh, which are the foundation of 21st century capitalism, were invented to ensure that people were getting their rightful cut of the pie. As a result, people became quite loyal to their empires, particularly in England, where the, crowd was, the crown was still tremendously powerful uh, and the nobility was firmly entrenched as a class. But even the common man truly felt that he was not only part of something greater, but that it was his as much as anyone else's. Uh, during that time, socialism was taking root amongst various union movements, but neither socialism nor unionism were anything like what we came to know them as in the 20th century. Marx spent his later life in England, but at that point, it was still a relative nobody. Uh, one voice amongst many, all declaring socialism to be different things. In fact, the most powerful voice was the Fabian Society, who were instrumental in developing what we know today as the corporation, but they had absolutely no time for Marx's revolutionary rhetoric. Uh, the empires were both largely built on trade between the imperial centre and the colonies, uh, raw material for finished goods. As a result, both the imperial heart and the colonies thrived, and the need for ever more land was a huge factor in this. Uh, a shepherd in 16th century England was a peasant and a pauper. By the late 19th century, a shepherd in Australia was as rich as royalty. Yeah, there was a, there was a bit, it's also worth noting there was a big, ch the reason for this big change in the Industrial Revolution is uh, uh, 
economist and historian Deidre McCloskey, she talks about how the entrepreneur began to be more valued in Western society, and that and that was a big contribution. Uh, but it's also because the because capitalism it's about mass production for the masses. That means a production was geared towards what the ordinary people wanted, and also the fact that there was the class system or the feudal system was beginning to collapse and then an ordinary person could rise rise to the top much more easily, which introduced social mobility. Yeah, yeah. So that's, yeah, that's that's the point that um, uh, it, it's no longer the power of the state, but rather the, the state now works for the people rather than the other way around. Yeah, it was, it, it was quite a monumental shift in the way that... Uh, uh, well, not just Western society, but uh, global society had been run for many centuries. Yeah, but of course it didn't last. Uh, and that alone is a huge subject. Uh, it would take too long to deal with the cause and consequences of World War I uh, in this podcast. Uh, I, I advise people to uh, listen to Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. He tells the story in exquisite detail. It's uh, up on iTunes for free. Uh, it's also up on YouTube if that's easier. But the Cliff Notes version is basically this. Uh, the causes of World War I were largely due to a breakdown of a very complicated diplomatic framework set up by German Chancellor Otto von, von Bismarck. Uh, it's so complicated that Bismarck himself was the only one who knew how to manage it. And with his death in 1898, the whole thing quickly turned into a time bomb. In 1913, the entire continent found itself at war without really knowing why. But what they did know was that the only way to stop it was to win it. Um, at the outset of the war, it was assumed that if Germany could hold off the British and French for six months, that the British would run out of money and surrender. Now, you've got to keep in mind that in the 19th century, it had been largely peaceful. And so the only real theory of war between major powers was still mostly based around a discussion of Napoleon. Uh, but of course, in that time, the Industrial Revolution and capitalism happened. And the tremendous productive forces of capitalism came to bear on the subject of war. It became clear, certainly to the Germans, that the only way to end the war was to kill so many of the opposing side that they would simply give up. The war was so expensive, so destructive, that by the end of it, thoroughly exhausted and in debt up to their eyeballs, mostly to Americans who had a booming economy as a result, all sides decided to disarm to avoid such a catastrophic nightmare from ever happening again. It's also worth noting the role that Marxism played in ending the war. First, of course, with the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, uh, deliberately spread and encouraged by German infiltrators, and then the collapsing of Germany's own morale as it spread back to German lines on the Western Front. Uh, it's, it was sort of the end of the, the golden era of laissez-faire and classical liberalism with the coming of World War I, because then we saw the, the rise of or na nationalism and what is the actual definition of the word fascism, which is the state working with industry. And so because World War, the end of World War I, it really it messed up Europe's economy. And even though the United States benefited from the end of uh, World War I, because, because they were uh, basically uh, getting all this business from rebuilding Europe, when that ended, that was one of the catalysts for the for the Great Depression. And sadly, these economic hardships, they, that's what led to the rise of, of bad economics. Well, yeah, I mean, so this is about the time of Keynes, uh, and Keynes was mostly remembered for his general theory of employment, interest and money. 
But what made him famous was his earlier book, The Economic Consequences of the Peace. Um, what he observed was that the sudden changes to the economy, both in England and in Germany, as well as the move towards uh, more protectionist trade policies, would not only make everyone poor, but would inevitably lead to another war. Uh, the effort to punish Germany for the war had saddled Germans with a debt they couldn't possibly pay, while at the same time destroying the largest customer of English industry. So what Keynes proposed, and this has been horribly abused by the left, is that England borrow more money to rearm, thus providing employment to its people, which would provide tax revenue to the state, which would in turn allow the state to pay off the debt. He wasn't heated at the time, but the Great Depression was just around the corner. The stock market crash of 1929 was in no small part due to the realisation that Europe would be unable to service its debt to American banks. Uh, this destroyed the last remnants of British industry, and Germany by the time was on full strike. Um, at which point fascism did begin to rear its ugly head. Uh, the rejection of both capitalism and communism was returned to the idea that the more powerful the state, the more powerful the people of the state. Keynes became very popular outside of Britain. Uh, the rise of Hitler, which had seen the exile of the largely Jewish Austrian school to Britain, was initially treated as an economic miracle. By the end of the war, uh, by the end of World War II, I should say, uh, Hayek was writing his famous book, The Road to Serfdom, in opposition to these ideas. Uh, it's Hayek's assertion that socialism, however practiced, leads inevitably to a totalitarian state. This, more than any other book, even arguably the wealth of nations itself, forms the foundation of libertarianism today. It's also important to note that the reason why Keynes was uh, so, po so popular during this time was the fact that he told governments what they wanted to hear justified their, their role in, in managing the economy. I'm not so sure if it's so much they... they that he told governments what they wanted to hear. It's just that uh, it, it certainly became an excuse for um, certain certain government actions within the economy. Uh, so it was certainly. Uh, I know that the free market economists were definitely in a in a dark place uh, during this time. But after the after World War Two, um, that's when well, the Cold War began, and when there was people believed there was a sharp distinction between the the Soviet Union, the communist world, and uh, the free world, the capitalist world led by America. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, the Soviet Union was certainly the premier example of socialism. To argue that it isn't is is simply intellectually dishonest, and it largely did follow Hayek's predictions of it. But at the time, Hayek was a pretty minor voice. People, certainly in America, were more interested in fellow Austrian Joseph Schumpeter, whose theories of creative destruction gave the most complete explanation for the Great Depression. Uh, it's also a lot less critical of government. Sorry, Schumpeter was also a lot less critical of government than his Austrian colleagues. He'd found some truth to Keynes's idea of government control of the commanding heights of capitalism, particularly as it related to finance. Uh, though still advocating the greater bulk of the economy should be a system of free enterprise. And of course, America, as one of the two major powers left standing at the end of World War II, had a problem. Uh, the other major power was the Soviet Union, who were happily spreading Marxist communism, communism to wherever they could. Uh, Americans were exceedingly rich by world standards, so the idea of spreading the wealth to fiercely individualist Americans who didn't much like their own government, let alone anyone else's, was naturally pretty horrifying. Uh, the Cold War began in earnest with the Soviet blockade of West Berlin, and this meant Americans had a problem. They have to stick up for capitalism, but at the same time, keep the Soviets contained. And by the time the Soviets got the bomb, that was a really big problem. Uh, it's also worth, uh, because 
uh, during this time, there were, even though we didn't know the full uh, disaster of what was happening in the in the communist worlds with the the famines and the and the killings, um, there were so, uh, signs that there were cracks in the in the communist system. I mean, you just have to look at the the people who wanted to escape uh, from East Berlin into the West, and also the the, the crushed uprisings in first in East Germany in '53, Hungary in 1956, and Czechoslovakia in 1960. Uh, yeah, is is when you look at so, uh, and you you sort of got to go back to why America won the Cold War there, and uh, in theory it's because free enterprise is the better system. Um, socialism inevitably collapses because there are no incentives to keep going, and I disagree with you. Is in the '60s the Soviet Union was an existential threat to liberalism in the world. Uh, there was very little indication that uh, the Soviet Union was was showing cracks, as it were. It was, is the indication was, was holy crap, these guys are going to beat us. Um, but by the 80s, it was definitely starving and hopelessly bankrupt. Um, that wasn't just because free enterprise was a better system. It was also because the Cold War was tremendously expensive to both sides. Free enterprise meant that Americans were able to afford it, where the Soviet Union was not. But it was the U.S. government that really won the war. Because of the productive powers of capitalism, the U.S. government was able to amass a lot more military material than the Soviet Union, and the Soviet Union simply went bankrupt trying to keep up. And throughout all of this was a propaganda war. In Western Europe, America sponsored various radio stations under the organisational heading Radio Free Europe, which were um, responsible in a lot of ways for the, the revolutions you were talking about. And Radio Free Europe used a lot of libertarian theory to criticise the Soviet Union and foment dissent and rebellion in the Eastern Bloc. And, uh, yeah, successfully. Um, but guys like Tom Palmer, Lou Rockwell, Thomas Woods and other prominent libertarians today, they were all part of that, that circle of Radio Free Europe and RAND Corporation, which was the largest um, free market think tank in America. So naturally, these guys were pretty zealous. And by the end of the Cold War, they're left in an America that is ostensibly the champion of the free market, but yet has this huge military industrial complex and this burdensome regulatory state and high taxes to pay for a war that never happened and wasn't going to. And America faced the same problem after the Cold War that Britain had after World War One. A sudden demilitarization would lead to a possible depression. So the military spending had to continue. Uh, America had essentially become addicted to it. And so while libertarian theory at this point was pretty complete, is, is it, it, was, uh, it, it was internally consistent and, and it matched the real world quite well, uh, the libertarian, uh, the, America wasn't libertarian by any stretch. And so the libertarian movement sort of grows out of this tension between the desire for the most free market an, an economy can be and the need to pay for it to defend it from enemies that did not at the time exist. There was a lot of uh, conservatives who, at the time of the, the Cold War build-up, said that this is just temporary until we can defeat the, the Soviet Union. And when, when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, that's when there was the split between the, the neoconservatives who wanted to, to keep the military-industrial complex going and look for new enemies, and then there was the, the paleo-conservatives, which uh, Pat Buchanan uh, was probably the the highest profile person at the time who said, okay, we've won the Cold War, now let's just retreat, uh, just look after ourselves and have America first. Yes, sure. 
And of course, it, it looked like, um, although uh, Pat Buchanan did well in 19, uh, 1992 and 1996, it was pretty much uh, since the end of the Cold War, it was the, the neoconservatives who pretty much uh, ran the show. And as, uh, uh, even under Bill Clinton, uh, of course, and then turbocharged by George W. Bush during his years. And, and libertarianism didn't really uh, have a resurgence until uh, Ron Paul came along. Yeah, so Ron Paul was elected in 1997 as a Republican advocating for very small government and strict adherence to the Constitution. But between the fall of the Soviet Union and the 2000 campaign, the libertarian right were very much not in charge of the Republican Party. Uh, the Republicans were still using libertarian rhetoric surrounding freedom and capitalism, who were very much in the hands of the neoconservatives, coming from a think tank called the Project for a New American Century. The Project for a New American Century was set up under Bush Senior, using a lot of people in the Reagan administration. It held broadly free market principles, but it held that since America had won the Cold War, it was up to America to clear the last vestiges of socialism from the earth. Uh, despite being nominally Republican, they were very influential, as you said, during the Clinton administration, um, with a couple of favourite targets, most notably Saddam Hussein's Iraq, um, who'd sided with the Soviets on a lot of issues. Uh, the neocons had promoted Islam as a weapon to counter socialism and Soviet influence, particularly in countries like Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, and on September 11th, 2001, the plan failed spectacularly. Uh, Bush Jr., a firm neocon, reacted as a neocon, uh, which is to say he declared at war on everyone, not declaring war on whoever he was declaring war on, uh, famously saying, you're either with us or against us. Uh, by 2001, the neocons were all but destroyed by their failure to anticipate Islamic blowback to American imperialism. Uh, the project for a new American century was shut down, and Republicans like John McCain... Uh, were desperately trying to distance themselves from the Bush administration without shifting to the left. And Ron Paul's 2008 campaign offered the libertarian viewpoint as a replacement vision for conservatism, of conservatism, for the Republican Party. Yeah, uh, he ran for president uh, under the Republicans in 2008 and 2012. He'd also uh, run under the Libertarian ticket back in 1988. Uh, so, so he had been around since he um, was elected to Congress in uh, 1997. Uh, but it's also worth looking on because it's basically turned Ron Paul's revolution. Uh, it's worth looking at why was it successful. Well, Ron Paul was successful in no small part due to the remnants of the Cold War rhetoric in the public discussion. Uh, the neocons had all been all about talking up freedom and capitalism, just not so great at practising it. Uh, and he had the, a great intellectual base to draw from in the form of former Cold War warriors who, having won the Cold War, were wondering why we hadn't blown the entire military budget on champagne. And with the growing disaster in Iraq and fierce opposition to the war on the left, his message found a receptive audience. A lot of conservatives looking at their tax bills and tired of talking about race and sexuality were prepared to give ground on all the social stuff in return for a more reasonable economic policy. Uh, the 2007 financial crisis made this a key issue. Libertarians proffered the theory that not only was government not the solution to the problem, the government was in fact the cause. And they point to economists like Paul Krugman, who had advocated for an increased government spending after the Nasdaq bubble in 1999, as evidence that all the government can do is blow a bigger bubble. And what needs to happen is for the government to stop spending to allow the mal malinvestment to clear, which was Schumpeter's point uh, way back in the Depression. Um, so Ron Paul's reasonable arguments captured the imagination of 
a lot of, shall we say, energetic thinkers. Uh, the campaign captured the surprising number of people who did not trust banks, uh, believed the government was corrupt and that the Federal Reserve was a conspiracy. Uh, Ron Paul's belief that a gold-backed currency, which would be beyond government control, was a better form of currency, had the simultaneous effect of creating a rabid base and repelling anyone not of that mindset or able to get past it. Uh, I remember at the time I was quite angry about the GFC and not having a firm grasp of economics myself, I bought into the sound money arguments in a big way. I've still got a couple of grand of silver stashed away somewhere. Um, it wasn't until I tried to sell it that I began to take a more holistic approach to economics. Um, the other advantage of the Ron Ball campaign and, his, and the broader libertarian movement is that so much of American symbolism has to do with freedom. Uh, the flag, the eagle, the silver dollar, they're all designed to imp inspire patriotic fervor, but they also inspired an almost religious affection for the libertarian ideas, in no small part thanks to the neocons. Uh, it's also worth, uh, the reason why I believe that Ron Paul is so successful is because he provided solutions to the current problems that were facing facing the world. I mean, uh, with the financial crisis, he he'd been talk obviously been talking about the the Federal Reserve, gold and silver, uh, government regulation for years. He was seen as the person who who had the solutions to to that problem. And it was also the fact that Americans by that time, after the the two Middle Eastern wars, were growing war weary. The, People wanted to retreat again. There was also the uh, the drug war was getting quite uh, authoritarian in America. People were growing uh, tired from that, and also because he was able to bring together a grand coalition, he was able to uh, bring together uh, left liberals who saw the the Democrats and Obama as weak on on their important issues. He was able to bring cross religious conservatives uh, because he had a good message on religious liberty and also the patriot movement as well. Yeah, I think most of that's fairly reasonable. Uh, so I have, uh, you have been quite um, critical of um, the libertarian movement, but uh, what, uh, what do you make of this period? Well, I'd say I'm more cynical than critical. Uh, don't get me wrong, Adam Smith and Friedrich Hayek were more, far more right than they are wrong. A system of free enterprise is without a doubt the best way to manage an economy. Plus, I don't particularly like being told what to do by politicians. And you only have to start a business or even chop down a tree in this country to realise that we're overregulated. Uh, the problem is that the libertarian movement became utopian and overzealous. It sells very well to young people and conspiracy quacks, but by the time you have to start selling it to the silent majority, the young people and the conspiracy quacks have taken control and started being generally unpleasant to anyone not as zealous as themselves. So there was obviously the, the Ron Paul presidential campaigns of 2008-2012, which got people really energised, and uh, there's all this talk about you know the libertarian moment, and people thought that the libertarian movement would just continue to grow, and eventually we'd get a libertarian president in four or eight years' time. But uh, then it began to uh, fall apart. The, the Grand Coalition failed to materialise. Now... The left are viewed, uh, as we talked about, as generally anti-war, um, and so there was this big try and outreach to the left and, and Democrats, but uh, that, as we have seen, has pretty much failed, uh, while appealing to, obviously, conservatives uh, and Republicans has been much more successful. So uh, why do you think this has been the case? Um, well, I think, again, this has got a lot to do with the Cold War, 
uh, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the right was without an enemy to justify its existence. And that was because the left at this point had no real existence at all, except to nod obediently along to whatever the right was saying. And into this vacuum sort of stepped their own alternative visions for the left. And specifically, that was environmentalism and gender theory. And I mean, Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth was released in 2007. Massachusetts became the first state in the US to recognize gay marriage in 2004. And this was all about right about the time that Hillary Clinton started evolving on these issues. But it also coincided with Ron Paul's campaign. And the beauty of both of these was that the enemy was the same, the decadent capitalist West. Uh, but the rhetoric was all new. And you only have to study feminism and gender politics for a while to realize that what you're reading is Marxism. They've changed the words and who the classes are, but the framework of the theory is still largely the same. Capitalism is replaced by patriarchy. The proletariat is replaced by women and gays. The panopticon is replaced by internalized misogyny and homophobia. Environmentalism, on the other hand, is built almost entirely around the idea that wealth is destructive. And so business conducted at a profit is immoral. Climate change managed to almost completely snuff out any discussion of other environmental concerns, not because climate change is much of a concern, but because those deemed responsible for climate change were much wealthier than those deemed responsible for deforestation, for example. Uh, it's also worth noting that uh, from 2012 onwards, that's when we saw the left uh, uh, become much more totalitarian. I mean, this was uh, when we saw the rise of social justice warriors and identity politics where, yeah, as, as you mentioned, that basically they'd, uh, they'd replaced uh, class oppression with all these minorities are being oppressed. And it's also when we saw political correctness uh, rear its ugly head again and then suppression of, of free speech, not just on university campuses, but people you know, losing their jobs or uh, having their businesses shut down because they disagreed with their politically uh, correct class as well. Yeah, yeah, is um, yeah, and so that's that's most of that comes under the heading of gender theory, uh, and yeah, it's it's this, and as I said, it's still basically Marxism. Yes. you're still dealing with haves haves versus have nots. Only now it's uh, straight white males are the haves because they have patriarchy, and everybody else is the have not don't. Um, and patriarchy is one of those words that's just so, you know foggily defined that it, it applies to anything and if you sort of dig through the more intellectual side of, of their arguments is, is you quickly realize oh hang on a second this is really it is just a synonym for capitalism yeah and it's it's also worth worth noting uh, as well that libertarians they they picked the the wrong side of the uh, of this battle to be on. I mean, they, they tried to, oh, you know, we should try and understand these people because they, they mean well, but no, they're, they're not interested in liberty and freedom. They're interested about uh, overthrowing what they perceive is the oppressive society and really about uh, destructiveness. Yeah. Uh, but it's also worth noting as well, I mean, obviously, uh, this social justice and political correctness stuff is sort of what we're seeing most from the left these days. But the reason why they've never bought into the idea of libertarianism is because they still hold to this idea that government uh, is able to fix all of our problems. And if there's there's something wrong in the world, there, a law can be passed to fix it. And also the fact that they view uh, free markets and capitalism as you know, giving corporations more power to rule over us. And so that's why they never buy the, the free market side of things. 
Well, I mean, there are left libertarians um, and, you know, they advocate for open borders and social reforms. And sort of to understand that strain of thought, you need to understand a gentleman by the name of Samuel Conklin III, uh, one of the original hacktivists and one of the probably the most influential anarchists of the late 20th century. What Conkin recognised was that it didn't matter whether a system was capitalist or socialist, the same people and the same organisations would be in charge. In Western capitalism, there were corporations run by executives. In Eastern communism, they were bureaus run by secretaries. Either way, you were being ruled and no number of revolutions would change that. And so Conkin labelled the executives and, and bureaucrats the political class, uh, which is uh, now a term in, in common use. Um, and it must be understood that left libertarians are a very different species to mainstream or right libertarians. Uh, left libertarianism was Marxism, but after the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, its members were former Marxists who had admitted that Marxism was indeed a failure and there was no point resurrecting or rebadging it. Uh, Konkin advocated for a new system called agorism. These days it's called anarcho-capitalism, uh, which was fundamentally free market in nature, but built on a Marxist understanding of power structures. The general gist of these of the idea was that people should decide for themselves uh, to turn away from the state and its artifices and that an anarchist society will naturally form from the efficiency of market forces. Now, this is in, const uh, this is in contrast to the broader left view that, um, you know, you don't have a choice to get a job. That essentially, it's either you're under threat is because if you don't have a job in a, in a free market society, you'll starve. Um, and so... That's that's not a choice. That's a threat. Um, and so they sort of see the welfare state as as the way to um, um, uh, solve those problems. And that this is sort of harking back to Fabian socialism and and uh, 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 slow and, and incremental drive towards socialism. Um, and uh, but for the the agorists um, is yeah is is people is people will naturally choose anarchy because selling goods, selling legal goods illegally avoids tax. So it stands to reason that if given the choice, people will naturally opt for the cheaper illegal goods rather than the more expensive legal goods. Um, and without admitting to any crimes, I'll say there's some truth to it. But at the same time, uh, it's still necessarily reliant on government to enforce the good order of society so that trade can take place. Uh, it appeals to survivalists and those who think they can look after themselves, but as well as those you know accustomed to buying illegal goods like drugs. But for the average reg Joe, regular old capitalism is is just easier. Yeah, definitely, uh, anarcho-capitalists. They they definitely share the sort of revolutionary as aspects of of Marxism that they view the the state as the ultimate oppressor. It pervades every aspect of our lives, screwing us over uh, in, in in every aspect. And so they really don't view participation with the the political process very well. No, they don't. And and you know you, you can see pretty easily how that's a recipe for political failure. Is is um, yeah. So the 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 anarchists, they don't want government at all. They're not affiliated to any political party. And while I don't want to speak in broad terms about they and them, uh, you know, I just, we're just sort of attacking the underlying theory here. But all politicians are inherently corrupt and all institutions of the state are inherently violent. What politicians want is to get elected and what party apparatchiks want is for them to get elected in return for some dividend of their own. And 
so the left libertarian argument is that it's impossible to get liberty from the government. Uh, it's a fairly sound argument if you define liberty as the absolute freedom from restriction whatsoever. But the, the inherent uh, contradiction of that is that, well, how do you sort of, how do you make, turn that into a political movement uh, without, you know, voting and, and political participation and say, you know, if they're all not voting, well, then they all don't count. They, it doesn't matter uh, what they believe. Um, yeah, they're, they're, they're pointless. They're just sitting there talking amongst themselves. Um, but if you take the more conservative approach to liberty, that's the freedom to succeed or fail in the enterprise of your choosing without interference from bureaucrats, then you'll probably see left libertarianism as advocating for the law of the jungle. They, they tend to believe a lot of these uh, anarcho-capitalists and left libertarians that they, they live in their own world and uh, if they just wish the state away, it will just magically disappear. That's, that's the impression I seem to get from them. Yeah, and, and you know, it doesn't matter how many times I've pointed out to them that, you know, you can't vote for anarchy, that, um, uh, you know, it, it never seems to sink in. They, they, they seem to see anarchy as possible and not just this sort of, um, as it was intended by the, by the original Austrians, you know, as, as this, um, as a theoretical tool to understand the state, they sort of see this this desirable end goal. Um, and yeah, and it, which is silly, is is the, the minute we ever actually had a, a truly anarchic society, the first thing people would do was band together and form a government. Um, is, yeah, is uh, uh, at, at some point there, you're going to need to, make rules about you know exactly what the government isn't allowed to do and if you're making the rules a lot more strict than they are today about things that the government isn't allowed to do which is possibly a good idea but you've still got a government there you've still got a state uh it's just a, a, a more liberal state now probably the the issue that's divided uh libertarians the most in recent years is open borders now the left uh, advocate for uh, open borders, um, which we're seeing the consequences of of that at the moment. But they still uh, still say that they have these open borders talking points where they just say, "Oh, it's good for for all of these reasons, and you just all need to recognise them." Well, I mean, the left libertarians certainly they see immigration controls as a restriction of movement across invisible lines. Um, you know, denying the, the absolute liberty that they're after. Um, and, and there are some economic arguments as well, but they're generally not borne out by evidence. And even when they do manage to find cases of economic growth from unrestricted immigration, then it's not exactly because of, the, you know, the, the examples aren't exactly beacons of freedom and happiness. Um, the economic arguments are also kind of deceitful because they're talking about importing labour or workers and not people with their own ideas about how society should be run. And this sort of leads to the most spectacular failure of libertarian theory, which is to recognise and react to the, to the threat of Islam. Uh, Islam is a competing political ideology with a complete set of laws and rules for how government should operate. And it's not libertarian by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, neo-Nazis in the West uh, looking at Saudi Arabia thinking, yeah, that's probably a bit much. You don't need to be that fascist. You can at least let the women drive. Um, and Saudi Arabia, of course, is the best example Muslims have um, of a functional Islamic society. And so, uh, so functional, in fact, that they don't have open borders, uh, even for other Muslims, lest it become dysfunctional. Uh, yeah, if, uh, 
Saudi Arabia and the other Gulf states, they won't accept any refu refugees because of security reasons, but suddenly it's all like our responsibility. Um, but well, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about, obviously, the left libertarians, their failure to see uh, Islam as a, as a threat. And it's obviously because, because they sort of, they want to, they, they, the left libertarians, they want to see, be seen as compassionate and caring. And obviously this is part of their outreach th to the left. And they, they have this idea that, oh, you know, we just all need to uh, love each other and it'll, it'll all be good, which is, which is not the reality is, uh, at all. I mean, we're seeing obviously the drain on the welfare state that, uh, uh, open borders has the the threats to the minorities, which the left supposedly cares about. Not to mention a lot of the crime and property damage that that comes with it. And if you view Islam as just an ideology, as as communism, then you can then you don't think of it as as this religious liberty issue. You think of it as a uh, ideology. Then you can look at things much more rationally. Sure, but uh, I, the mistake of the, the, the left and the left libertarian outreach to the left there is, is you haven't quite understood what the left's goal there is, and, and it, it's by libertarian theory that you should be able to understand it, is they're, they're trying to get elected. Uh, that's what they want here. And so they're you know, proposing these rhetorical strikes um, for, you know, against racism and, and things like this. Um, this is this is a power play for them. Is the the idea that you know if we agree to this that they'll suddenly vote for us? Well, that's not going to happen. Is they'll just they'll just switch no. to something else, and they largely have. Um, so there's the 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 idea that you can uh, that there's there's some olive branch that we can um, extend there is is nonsense. Is that's that's not what's going on. It's not the reality of the situation. Um, and yeah, it, it, as for as for you know, the, the libertarian sort of failure to see the threat of Islam. And I think the first point there is I think a lot of people confuse politeness, politeness from Muslims with agreement. And I've got a pretty cool story there I got from a, a German guy um, uh, who from Hamburg. Uh, and, uh, yeah, is, so he actually lived just down the road from, um, I forget the name of the, the guy, the guy who planned the 9-11 attack. So that was called the Hamburg cell. They all, you know, studied in Hamburg. And yeah, he's living just down the road from, from the terrorists. Never had any problems with him. Right? Got along famously. In fact, uh, when the Interpol actually called up to interview um, the terrorist's uh, former employer, the, the terrorist's form, former employer thought he was being called for a reference and gave a glowing one. He said he was great. He, you know, he didn't bother anybody with his religious stuff. You know, he prayed five times a day, but it never bothered anyone. And other than that, he got along well with all his other co-workers and all this sort of stuff. It's like, yeah, is is you know, you can't just pointing out that your enemy's polite doesn't make them not your enemy. Is you know, you don't have to dehumanise someone to fight them. Um, and uh, yeah, is is I certainly see Muslims as human, and as a result, you know, capable of common decency. That doesn't mean that uh, we can tolerate their presence. And I think the deeper point is is that the american brand of religious liberty which have which has evolved from uh the constitution which was basically set up to ensure there was never going to be a church of america but has evolved into this believe whatever you want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else and that works really well when you're talking about protestant christianity which is something that takes place on sunday mornings before everybody gets on with their lives 
Uh, and the teachings of most Protestant churches are, for the most part, consistent with the right libertarian understanding of the state. Uh, and we skipped over it before, but the Protestant Reformation in Northern Europe was a big factor in the birth of classical liberalism. So naturally, countries which have adopted the principles of classical liberalism are generally in agreement with the teachings of Protestant Christianity. But Islam rejects all of it and commands its followers to make the state Muslim. Uh, and this comes to the West in two general forms. The first, first is obviously terrorism, which is revolutionary Islam, Islamism, akin to Marxist socialism. And the second is conservative Islamism, which, like Fabian socialism, is content to play the long game, arguing for gradual reform through democratic processes. Left libertarians seem to confuse the latter with assimilation, but just because Muslims understand liberal democracy and are content to live by its rules for the time being uh, doesn't mean they've adopted liberal democracy or certainly doesn't mean that they're reforming Islam to fit it. Yeah, there's always this argument that, oh, there's plenty of like nice Muslims, and I always say, yeah, there's plenty of communists who are you know, nice people in person, doesn't mean their ideology is good. Yeah, terrorists can be nice too. And it's also the, the argument that libertarians use to uh, explain why Muslims uh, are behaving the way they are is because uh, they're, they're only that way because of uh, mainly American foreign policy. But although I do concede that that has made things probably worse, it's the, the main justification for their violence comes from the, the book where their religion comes from, the Quran. Yeah, and not only that, but the main justification for American foreign policy has has been the very libertarian arguments that um, that they're making in, in this in this exact context is um, you know this idea that we'll spread freedom everywhere and then they'll be free to be Muslim. Well, hang on a second, Islam doesn't agree with that, and so us spreading these libertarian ideas to these foreign countries has resulted in this in this Islamic blowback, and you know. 9-11, well, 9, what was 9-11 in response to? 9-11 was, was a, a, a political statement to awaken Muslims to this idea of, of you know, the reality of, of um, encroaching liberalism, and they've responded with encroaching Islam. Um, and so we're, we're all trying to impose our world on everybody else, right? And libertarians are just as guilty of that as anyone else. And so this idea that, oh, if we're all libertarian, well, then you know, it'll all be fine. Well, hang on a second. If we're all libertarian, then no one's a Muslim. And if you're a Muslim, you're going to have a problem with that. So also, we've talked a lot about uh, Islam, but we'll talk about uh, whether border controls in general are, are justified under uh, libertarian philosophy. Yeah, well, in general, whenever you're importing a, a foreign culture, prudence is a virtue. Uh, there's some obvious cultures around the world, mostly within the Anglosphere, where unrestricted movement between countries could take place with very few issues. But there are also vastly different cultures in terms of education levels, affluence, morals, politics and allegiances. Saying that if you open the door to some, we have to open the door to all is silly. And treating a New Zealander the same as a Saudi is unfair to New Zealanders. And treating a Saudi the same as a New Zealander invites trouble. Uh, and it's perfectly fine to discriminate on any basis you like at the border uh, in fact, discriminating at the border is a really good way to avoid too much discrimination domestically. If we're only bringing in the people that are going to assimilate well or leave quickly, then it's a reasonable argument, that, or a reasonable assumption by everyone already here that a foreigner is probably no threat. On the other hand, if border controls are too lax, then it becomes reasonable to treat foreigners as if they are a threat with no evidence either way. If you don't have to deal with them, then why would you take the risk, essentially? Um, 
Plus, the the only reason we're doing it, if the only reason we're doing it is to prove we're not racist, then that's both a really terrible reason and possibly quite wrong. I mean, the White Australia policy was only re repealed 50 years ago. We certainly haven't evolved since then. And I think there's some fairly good evidence around to say that Australians are a bit racist. Importing foreigners doesn't cure that. It inflames it. Yeah, it's. I, I always say that... Uh, part of the, the right of people living in a country or in a community is that they have the right to uh, have a say in how their community looks. I mean, I, I often view the, a country as pretty much the same as a private club. I mean, private clubs are allowed to decide who is a, is a member of that, and if they don't want certain people joining their club, then they don't ever accept them. And, and uh, we don't... We don't live in a complete private property society as obviously the anarcho-capitalists would like, and so we do have this public land. And how do we decide who's allowed to come onto this uh, public land from from other uh, countries? It's by voting in in democracies, and so people have the right through democracy to have a say about you know who they want to let in. Uh, yeah, so that's that's um, similar, I suppose, to what Rothbart was talking about. Uh, in nations by consent. Uh, my view, I think, is perhaps a bit more Hayekian. Uh, it's, it's that it's impossible to understand society completely and that there is always going to be more than what, than what meets the eye. And I, I think about people who are otherwise good people but who have a short fuse when dealing with foreigners. Uh, calling them ignorant or racist doesn't stop them being ignorant or racist. And if they're otherwise gainfully employed and productive members of society, then I don't see how it's on anyone to cure them of anything. Uh, I certainly... I certainly don't think they're made better off by being cured of their racism. And I'm also recognizant of, of Hop's arguments that just because you want to trade with someone doesn't mean you want to live next to them. But libertarianism proposes that it's not your decision who your neighbor sells or rents his house to. Uh, that might be nice in theory, but it's factually incorrect. All that's saying to the average Joe is vote for us and we'll move someone you hate next door to you because stuff you. Uh, and if you, you don't have to be racist to vote against that. And since people can and are voting against that, it seems pretty clear to me that it is their decision. Uh, and libertarians just don't like it. Yeah, it's often, uh, often they say that, oh, you know, why should I have to uh, f consider what the, what the plebs think? I mean, my ideas are correct. Uh, other people shouldn't get a say in, in what is my ideal society. Yeah, that's right. And at which point we've, we've well and truly jumped off the libertarian train and, and we're now, you know, just as authoritarian as anyone else. Uh, so obviously there are uh, a lot of open borders people there. They're quite triggered by, by Trump's wall. Um, but I, I think it's, it's perfectly OK to, to, to have that as a, as a control over who comes in. Um, yeah, I think Trump's wall is a good idea, uh, not necessarily because I don't think Mexicans would make good Americans, but because I recognize that it's America's choice, not Mexico's who comes to America and the conditions upon which they arrive. I mean, Australia is an island, so we have no need for a wall and we exploit the air-sea gap to control our border fairly effectively. And the people who have moved to this country, so the people that have moved to this country are here because we've allowed it. Um, you know, so far, far be it for me to begrudge America the same right. Okay, so we've talked about a lot about the more controversial issues of libertarianism. Now let's uh, talk about uh, some of the 
uh, economic and more philosophical questions about libertarianism. Now, a lot of the discussion is about uh, the difference between things that government can do and things that they should do. Yeah, and so this is um, more or less the Keynes-Hayek debate, uh, such as there was one, um, and that sort of led to Hicks and Schumpeter and ultimately Friedman, <clears throat> excuse me, as the intellectual standard bearers of intellectual of American capitalism in the late 20th century. Uh, the broadly Keynesian idea, not that it has much, to have, if anything, to do with Keynes himself, is that government can make some broad scientific claims about the economy at any one time, and that economic policy must always be adaptive to what is measured. Uh, through the desire of economists to sort of justify their own profession, this has led to some pretty big claims about what the government can do, though it ignores a fair bit of discussion about what the government should do. Uh, and alcohol and cigarette taxes, for example, are built on a fairly robust economic theory, but very little scientific testing in the real world. Um, the Hayekian counterpunch is that economics, in its quest to be seen as just as scientific as physics, has led economists to confuse what is measurable for what actually matters. Um, so we cannot say for certain the reason smokers smoke. Uh, so manipulating prices is a policy with no guarantees, barring that it's undoubtedly going to have unforeseen consequences. The broader counter-argument is that if government operates only according to principles known to be successful, then the market will adapt to those principles in an orderly fashion. And this is actually much closer to what Keynes himself wrote when discussing genuine uncertainty. When we look at business investment and consumer spending in the economy, businesses will be willing to take more risks if they don't have to factor in sudden changes to government policy. Hayek, far from refuting these ideas, actually builds on them in his final book, The Fatal Conceit. Uh, that a society adhering to broad principles will succeed if those principles are sound and fail if they're not sound, and that this is how the human race evolves over time to create better and better societies. Yeah, and going, you've, you've talked about Hayek there, but also Adam Smith, he talked about the, the three roles of government. Yeah, so the three roles given by Smith were basically defence of the nation, law and order, and provision of public infrastructure. And this brings us back to a conversation. Um, sorry, excuse me. Uh, the, broadly speaking, the principles of government, according to Smith, was if there is something that a private sector, that the private sector would not do, but it was necessary that it be done, then the argument could be made that it was a justified responsibility of government. The foremost example being the provision of the national defence. Adam Smith's argument, his arguments here are quite fascinating. He posits that while national defence in ages gone, could be achieved by part-time militia. Uh, capitalism makes possible through the division of labour the job of the professional soldier. Uh, and professional soldiers would always be superior to militias, particularly in fights with gunpowder weapons, where discipline is the paramount skill. I've always found that to be a fascinating theory by Smith, not only because his logic is quite sound, but because of how diametrically opposed it was to Washington's arguments for the Second Amendment. If there is any distinction between classical liberalism and left libertarianism, it is the competing views about standing armies. It also explains why conservatives across the Anglosphere are generally much more forgiving of defence spending than other types of government spending. Uh, in conservative view, national defence is something which, from which everyone benefits, making it necessary, but which few would pay for if they didn't have to. Uh, quite a bit of libertarian thought has gone into refuting Smith's arguments for government. I've always found that that ironic to the point of hypocrisy, 
since on the one hand, libertarians point to the spectacular success of capitalism, and yet on the other, argue against the theories of the man who kicked the whole thing off. Yeah, I definitely agree that uh, free markets uh, can do a better job of deliver, uh, delivering services and being more efficient uh, than bureaucracies and governments, basically because of the, the profit motive and there's the incentives. Because uh, base, basically the, uh, the social democratic argument in favour of universal health care and uh, compulsory education is that without uh, these things then uh, there would be people who miss out. But the fact that companies, they're able to reduce the costs as much as possible, while the uh, bureaucracies, they, uh, the way that they see this success is increasing, increasing their budgets and expanding their operations. So you're basically having, having a, in a bureaucratic sense, you're having uh, more cost light, which leads to poorer delivery and poorer services, which basically uh, disadvantages the the lower income people who you were trying to advantage in the first place. Yeah, and it's not like bureaucrats don't have any incentives, it's that they have the wrong incentives. Yes. Uh, people, people tend to care more about their own property than the property of others. So, in general, private ownership of various things leads to better and more sustainable use of those things. Now, the argument that is, uh, now that argument is indeed pure Smith, but interestingly enough, he was making it not in, top, not in opposition to government action, but in fact against the idea of a joint stock company, or as we know today, the limited liability corporation. Uh, I mentioned earlier that the joint stock company was a product of Fabian socialism. Modern libertarian think, theory is more about the critique of politicians trying to get elected by taxing broadly, but then spending specifically, thus causing a small amount of pain to everyone, but a great deal of pleasure to a certain voting bloc. Bureaucrats, on the other hand, are incentivised to keep their jobs, and in order to do that, they seek to make themselves necessary. This harkens back to the Schumpeterian idea of crowding out good investment. Uh, an example would be the reason that we rely on government for healthcare is because the government has crowded out private solutions, and because of this, healthcare is more expensive than it needs to be. And people also forget that, you know, before we had the, the welfare state and these government programs, I mean, there, there weren't people, you know, just left to fend for themselves. There was this huge uh, civil society, voluntary organisations which helped people. I mean, they're a distant memory now, so people often uh, forget them. And I think the, the other thing that people uh, have, a, or those on the left have a hard time grappling with is that they can't give the corporations credit. It's just that profit is always a dirty word for them. And it's like, oh, you know, we, we, can't, we, we can't concede that uh, somebody might be benefiting off, off an essential service. The weird thing about that, that is, though, they're more than happy for, for supermarkets to, private supermarkets to feed people. Uh, but the main reason that uh, free, uh, free markets, not only are they superior in delivering services, but they also allow for uh, the free markets to, free markets allow for wealth to expand, economies to expand, uh, more technology, uh, better production techniques. And socialism just means because of those perverse incentives, uh, that it means that we're all, we're all poorer. Yeah, I mean, John Kenneth Galbraith famously said that un under capitalism, man exploits his fellow man. Under communism, it's the other way around. Uh, the libertarian perspective on this is largely built on the Austrian school. 
uh, in general, it's the idea that private enterprise run at a profit is both more efficient and effective than government-run businesses. So replacing private businesses with government-run business makes us all worse off. Uh, the libertarian opposition to socialism points to countries like North Korea and Venezuela to say, look, that's what happens when the government starts running everything. You get perverse incentives, corruption and graft and economic stagnation. Uh, this is probably why libertarianism tends to attract a lot of people with training in economics, because even non-libertarian economists, John Kenneth Galbraith being one of them, tend to wind up making libertarian arguments. Uh, Amartya Sen's another example. Um, I doubt he'd ever call himself a libertarian. And he says that when you look at in economic inequality in a, a bugbear of the left in developing countries, that that it's only indicating that economic development is actually taking place, as some industries must develop first so that other industries can develop in their presence. For example, you can't have a software industry without a concrete industry. Computers don't do very well in the rain. So in order to have a software industry, you have to have buildings to put computers in, which means whoever is producing concrete is going to get rich first before anyone else can get rich. Uh, Greg Bankew is another example of an economist who I doubt anyone would, who I doubt would see themselves as libertarian, but makes a case in his widely used textbook that economists and politicians make face a trade-off between fairness and efficiency, and that in general, those who, who choose efficiency over fairness do a better job than those who choose the opposite. Yeah, I mean, it's, de it's definitely the case that uh, as we're seeing with Venezuela at the moment, I mean, they're, they're a country that's basically starving now, they're, the government is, is tyrannical, but the, the difficulty with uh, free market economics is that uh, this brings it back to uh, Henry Hazlitt's economics in one lesson, of course, uh, Frederick Bastiat's The Law, that uh, uh, libertarian free market economics is counterintuitive to a lot of people. What you actually think is is the case is actually wrong. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, all, all of that seems pretty reasonable to me. Is is you know, there's there's going to be trade-offs in life, and you can't, um, you know, you it is you you should choose the better one. Even you know, even if it means there's a sacrifice somewhere else, and. If on the whole, the sacrifice of one, like it's a cost-benefit equation, is, is so if you're looking at, at uh, um, capitalism versus socialism, you're not particularly enthused about either of them. And you do a cost-benefit equation where you say, well, you know, look, a, a capitalism's got these fairly reasonable costs, but these enormous benefits. Socialism's got, you know, fairly small costs, but doesn't have a whole lot of benefit either. <laughs> and people also seem to forget the fact that every resource is scarce and so we've got to come up with an efficient way to ration everything carefully and the most efficient way to ration what scarce resources we have on the planet is through the free market so we all use resources efficiently I mean it's it's not the case I mean some uh, uh, socialists they think that the problem is that we've got all these resources in society and it's just being hoarded by all the rich people and we just need to grab it off them yeah, so rich people create poor people, but in fact, rich people create other rich people. Uh, so socialism, there's a good saying about it, that we can't all be uh, rich, so let's be equally poor together. Mm. Now, we've talked about uh, libertarian economics, but let's talk about uh, the social, social policy aspects. So, 
uh, we talked about at the beginning that libertarianism is, is sold as being economically conservative and socially liberal, but I reckon this is quite incorrect because you don't have to be personally socially liberal to be a libertarian. You can be a social conservative and be a libertarian. You just don't think that it's better for society to, for the government to enforce morality. Yeah, so the social libertarian stuff tends to be a conversation had by lawyers and lobbyists of a progressive bent. It's built on the general idea that as long as you're not hurting anyone else, you should be free to do whatever you want. Um, as this relates to government, it's the idea that government should be strictly restrained from passing any laws that restrict private behaviour, except in cases where that behaviour harms others. This is captured by the non-aggression principle, which in broad terms is the idea that the only warranted use of force is defence against force. Everyone has the natural right to life, liberty and property, which translates to a future, your life, a present, a liberty, uh, and a property, which is your past. Uh, this encourages thinking about the difference between positive and negative rights. If a woman is a compulsive slut, for example, nobody has the right to stop her, but she does not have the right to then demand a potential husband accept her when she's done playing the field. Another good example is drug use. Everyone has the right to use drugs, but a drug user does not have the right to expect others to pay for them. A negative right is the right to be free from interference from others. A positive right is the right to interfere with others. Libertarianism is built in large part around the idea that only negative rights exist and that positive rights are actually a modern form of slavery. I'm not actually convinced by this. I, I'd say it's really so clean cut. Uh, a good example where libertarian social policy ties itself in knots is on the subject of abortion. On the one hand, the mother's right to choose what to do with her body is her liberty. On the other hand, a baby's right to life is exactly that. It's life. Uh, so you have a battle of negative rights. One way or the other, someone is aggressing against someone else. And when you start thinking about the battle, battle of negative rights, you start to realise that a lot of things that seem clear-cut according to libertarian thinking, but really aren't. Um, if I find the use of certain drugs morally offensive, libertarianism says don't do drugs, which seems simple enough. But if I want to live in a community where nobody does drugs, libertarianism says you can't. You have to put up with the presence of drugs so as not to avoid, avoid, so as to avoid uh, infringing on the liberty of others. Uh, but at that point, it becomes a positive right for the drug user to exist in every community. You might argue that surely libertarians would admit that you have the right to manage your community a certain way, provided everyone agrees. But where does that end? Uh, are, are we talking about my neighbourhood, my town, my, my city, my state, my country, my planet? Uh, take the Philippines, for example. President Duarte has basically made the killing of drug users legal and tens of thousands have died as a result. Libertarians looking at that and saying he doesn't have the right to do that. But yet he's overwhelmingly popular with his people. Uh, what right do liber libertarians have to sanction him? And if they have no right to sanction him, then it seems to me that he does indeed have the right to kill drug users in his own country. And if we're going that far, how can we possibly say that socialism or fascism is wrong? The Nazis in Germany were, Germany were elected. In fact, they were quite popular in Germany at the time. The German people decided they wanted to live in a country without Jews. If we are denying anyone any positive rights, then we must say that Jews do not have the right to live in Germany. So at which point libertarianism has become a justification for the Holocaust. So libertarianism has a lot to say about theory, but when that theory is applied, it seems to me that libertarianism is self-defeating. Uh, it has contributions to make to improving society and government, but a truly libertarian government is simply impossible. Uh, inevitably, there will be exceptions and hypocrisies that are just simply impossible to solve without some other body of theory, 
more a bit more amenable to positive rights stepping in to fill the gaps and that's why i say liberty is impossible without nationalism despite all the hooping and hollering of libertarians over the last 20 years in opposition to the ideas of adam smith in actual fact adam smith had a far more profound understanding of liberty than libertarians today it is still at the end of the day defending the freedom of the nation that we are most concerned with it's not necessarily the freedom of those within it yeah, you raise a, a lot of interesting points there. The, uh, I, the way that I sell social conservatives, uh, so, uh, libertarianism to social conservatives is the fact that I always say that you know, if, you, if you want you know, a, a moral society, then prohibition is probably the worst way, worst way to do it because you turn people who, who, who have, say, sex and drug problems into criminals and that is not the best way to help them. It's much better to have a community-based response. So I really dislike the, the left libertarians who are like, hey, you know, you should be able to have you have sex wherever you want and use drugs wherever you want and uh, basically have that, you know, it's my right to things end, end of argument, which is which does not sell the message of liberty to, to anyone as well. Having said that, though, um, obviously... You know, we we all have different morals and views on social issues, and for, for some people, they they might might want to live in a community which is free of uh, drugs and pornography or uh, alternative uh, sexual practices, and they should have the the right to do that. But also another another pl uh, place or community should have the right, if they want to have a permissive society, they should be able to have that as well. So that's where I really like the, uh, the United States with, with 50 states having their own moral laws if they want. So if one state wants to prohibit alcohol, that's their right. You can just move to another state where it's legal. If one state wants to outlaw sodomy, then if you want to practice it, just go to another state. But having said that, though, I still don't think that those communities should punish people for moral laws. I think the appropriate punishment should be banishment or exile. So therefore, they're kicked out, uh, but they're free to go to somewhere where it's acceptable. Yeah, there might be a case to be made there. Yeah, sure. Now, the Liberal Democratic state, uh, a lot of people view view it as a lot of libertarians view it as as too as too much of a compromise, not radical enough. But it's argued that it's the ultimate bastion of freedom and defence against tyranny. Yeah, and so th this is kind of the point I'm making, is um, we've got to concern ourselves a less, a lot less, with the march of freedom and human rights around the world. Uh, at the very least, we must restrict conversations of liberty to our liberty and respect that other countries might have a different way of doing things. That seems pretty f simple at first glance, but it does propose some pretty significant policy changes. For a start, the foreign aid budget would be reduced to zero, and even privately funded endos would have to be restricted from political advocacy if they wish to operate in Australia. Um, if we're saying to the world that we're going to be free regardless of what you do, and we're not going to tell you what to do, but you damn sure better not tell us what to do, then we can't have our people running around the world spreading liberty to countries that don't want it. Um, if we're to be more libertarian in Australia, then 
we would not be able to tolerate foreign NGOs spreading socialism or fascism or Islam or any other competing ideology in Australia. Essentially, we would not tolerate intolerance for our way of life. Uh, this suggests a radical rethinking of the way we handle asylum seekers as well. Uh, as it stands, we take in refugees on the basis of unable to live in their own countries or fleeing persecution at the hands of their government. This is obviously built on the ideas of Jews fleeing persecution from Nazi Germany. It works until it works when you can split up the world into two camps, uh, liberalism and socialism. Unable to live under socialism means able to live under liberalism. But in a multipolar world of many different flavours of political beliefs, asylum seekers can only be accepted under a much stricter proviso of has accepted the principles of our way of life. Essentially, the only people we'd be letting in would be fans of Australia, even asking them that they've even asking them that they've rejected their own heritage is not enough. They must accept ours. Uh, and even then, we've got to be careful about not facilitating failed policies overseas. Countries that have failed to develop because of poor political structures or overpopulated because of poor social institutions, and as a, as a consequence of producing economic refugees, are essentially outsourcing their problems to us. If they're unsustainable, then the faster they collapse, the better for everyone. We're not doing anyone any favours by importing the world's poor, least of all ourselves. Obviously, the anarcho-capitalism or radical libertarians, they hate the, the nation-state, but... Uh, there is always going to be, whether there is an anarcho-capitalist society, there is always going to be some form of community uh, rule or governance. And so I definitely think that uh, the nation-state, it is important to make sure, as we mentioned before, that people have a say in how their communities are run. And definitely the policies of a government or or even right down to community level, it should be to look after the people living in those communities. It should not be to look, look after people who are miles and miles away. I mean, if you, the perfect example is the fact that uh, most people look after the welfare of their families first before anyone else. And I think that, that's, that should be the same as, as a nation does. And definitely, if we all want to live together in uh, in, dis in disagreement, then we have to make sure that you know we stick to our own parts, our own parts of the world. And also, yeah, I definitely agree that uh, uh, spreading our, you know, the virtues of you know Western democracies overseas is co is completely futile. I mean, uh, this is what libertarians themselves are trying to do. They're trying to remake the world in uh, their image, which is. The world is made up of people who, a lot of who don't agree with you, and so it's a complete, a complete waste of time and actually counterproductive to try and enforce your, your views and your way of living on other people. And we've seen that uh, play out uh, over the last two decades in the Middle East. Yeah, well, certainly. I mean, uh, if you look at uh, the, the, the only argument for the war in Iraq that still, still holds water is we're going to spread freedom to, to, to Iraq. Well, we didn't. What we did was we caused the rise of ISIS, and the reason was because they didn't want freedom. They, what, well, what we called freedom. They didn't, want, they didn't want anything to do with it. They wanted Islam, and they got it. Right? And you know, we're sort of sitting here sort of saying, well, you can't have it. Of course they can have it. I mean, you know, if you're going to expect our guys to, to sacrifice their lives for, for them and they don't even want it, well, that's just absurd. And it's never ending. Is, is, you'll be throwing money at that problem for the rest of forever. 
Um, so yeah, is is the idea, and, and that brings it back to this point of, of this anarcho-capitalist community. Um, well, the anarcho-capitalist community is going to exist in a certain geographic place in a certain um, uh, certain time frame, and in that time, it's going to be surrounded by non-libertarian societies. Those non-libertarian societies might be looking at the anarcho-capitalist land and, and resources and going, you know, we'd be better off, we'd be better off if that stuff was in our hands and all we've got to do is, is kill these clowns who won't even buy an army. So, uh, yeah, is is at the end of the day, you're going to need a nation-state. You need the nation-state to be a bulwark against, you know, different tribes with different different ideas about how they want to live their lives and all that sort of stuff. So if you want freedom to exist anywhere... It has to be within the, the broader context of a nation-state. You're definitely free to convince uh, people overseas of the, the virtues of your ideas, but you definitely don't have the right to enforce it. And I often use the term libertarian dictatorship. You can't just say, uh, this, is, this is my right to something, end of, end of conversation. You just have to all accept it. I think libertarians are not winning any friends with that strategy. No, well, yeah, is, is as I said earlier, is is you know the Ron Paul campaign uh, attracted a lot of um, energetic thinkers, um, you know, they, and they became extremists. They became you know they became obsessed with this this utopian vision of of libertopia, and yeah, at, at the end of the day, all you've done is is just turned everyone off. So yeah, but you know, at the same time, the the sort of the, there's not a real solution there. For libertarianism is is you're either going to stick with your principles or you're not. Um, if you're not going to stick with your principles, then well, give up on libertarianism. And if you are going to stick with your principles, well, then you're going to lose. So there's there's not there's no real solution there for libertarianism. Is it's it's just kind of doomed to this to this sort of slow, steady decline into nothingness. Well, there's a whole bunch more, uh, more of uh, things about libertarianism we could talk about, but unfortunately we're out of time. So um, we've, we didn't get a chance to discuss uh, what should be the way forward for uh, libertarianism, but maybe we'll save that for a future show. But that's the end of our first ever philosophy show. So thank you, Sam, for uh, being, uh, being the first uh, co-host for this format. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, and so we hope you enjoyed this, this new show. Uh, we've got a whole list of topics for future episodes, so make sure you stay, stay tuned for those. Uh, and of course, at the end of every episode, the usual reminders apply. Don't forget to sign up to our email list at theunshackled.net slash subscribe. Uh, don't forget, uh, you can also support the work of The Unshackled, becoming a Patreon on Patreon, uh, donate via PayPal, or sign up to be an advertiser with us. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, or view the video version on YouTube. And of course, don't forget to keep checking out theunshackled.net for all the latest news. So thanks once again for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye.